Good evening. It's Thursday the 10th of March 2022. I'm Ruth Moore and this is a Torch post-show conversation coming to you from the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon. We're here for tonight's performance of one of Shakespeare's best-loved comedies, Much Ado About Nothing. Directed by Roy Alexander-Wise, Much Ado stars Akia Henry as Beatrice and Luke Wilson as Benedict. With set design by Jemima Robinson, costume designed by Melissa Simon-Hartman and an original score by Femi Temo-Wo. The programme promises us a futuristic world where two very different couples fall in love. But who is really pulling the strings? With dastardly plots, hilarious slapstick and some of Shakespeare's wittiest dialogue, this story of matchmaking and manipulation is the perfect way to celebrate the joy of live theatre. After the show, we'll be joined by Professor Judith Buchanan, Master of St Peter's College, and Professor Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies, Oxford University. Judith and Emma will be sharing their reflections on the production and on the return of Shakespeare to the RST. So we're at the interval of the RSC Much Ado and... Yeah, we've got to the bit where Claudio has just seen the um, terrible betrayal at the, at, the, at the window, which we, at the, the balcony, which we did actually see, although that's not in the, not in the play. Yep. What do you think, Judith? Well, we saw a little bit of the saucy trick. We did. Didn't we? We did. Uh, uh, I am really enjoying it. I am... Uh, the design is extraordinary. It's a sort of futuristic vision, although it's a slightly sort of nostalgic sense of the future, it seems to me. And there's a lot of uh, festive, bonny energy. I am getting a lot of the sense of the mirth, and it's been all mirth so far, so I'm interested to see how they're going to contain that, and perhaps there's been more hey, nonny, nonny than signs of at the moment so I'm not sure where they're going to take that or how they're going to bring that down but there's been a lot of beauty a lot of gold a lot of fizz a lot of energy so far how have you found it? So that's so interesting hearing you say that I'm not enjoying it and that's quite unlike me and I'm just trying to think why am I not enjoying it I think the set is in the way so I think we've just seen those two amazing comic scenes where first Benedict and then Beatrice are tricked um, in, you know, with these kind of hopeless uh, hiding places, and the, you know, it's all been put on for their benefit. And I thought they were both really clumsily blocked, uh, particularly Benedict's actually, where the boy, who is part of the scene, is needs going to go and get a book, was was kind of in the way. I didn't, I couldn't see Benedict's kind of reaction. I couldn't get the reaction shots. I thought that was an example of the way with the set. The set is a law unto itself. I mean, and it is not actually helping. I felt that a bit with the, that wonderful fountain they brought on. It was a big piece of kit, very little used um, for the effort of it. Um, and it feels to me slow. And it's slow because, partly because of the music, partly because of some set piece dancing. Yeah. Wes has brought some ice cream there, fantastic. Thank you. Everything will be, everything will be improved by that, I think. I'm really enjoying the music. So that I mean I, I agree Me I agree with you that some of the blocking um, does feel a little bit impedimentary or or that it's sort of impeding a sense of the fluency. But when the fluency is allowed to happen and the music releases some of that fluency, I think I think the, the cast is much more comfortable in the music I agree. actually than, than actually than in the dialogue maybe. I agree. And when I first saw the, some of the costumes, I did feel that they could be 
somewhat in the way. They're very big, yeah. um, kind of cartoonish proportions, yeah, yeah, some of them. And amazing superheroes, aren't they, in a way? Yes. There's weird kind of weird superheroes come. Yeah. There was a superhero entrance, a super superhero entrance for uh, Don Pedra, as mm-hmm. she is in this production. Mm. And Claudio and uh, Benedict, they were given a glorious entrance as they descended at speed from the gods, kind of waving their superhero capes at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a kind of sense of, we're back, we've been at war, and uh, now let the loving begin. That was, was, yes, that's right. What do you think about having Don Pedro? Because one of the things... I mean, one kind of really obvious thing to say about the play and the whole reason to come to the theatre is to not say obvious things about the play but one obvious thing about the play is it is a kind of gender war isn't it the women's world and the men's world it's actually quite different and there is a toxic component to that having what do you think about having Don Pedro as this prominent sort of go-between yes I mean they they played that quite nicely at the moment at which Don Pedro but now Don Pedra uh, offers him slash herself in jest, in seriousness. We don't know to uh, Beatrice, mm. and um, but but because it was now a woman offering herself mm. to a woman, mm. there was a real delicacy I thought in how Beatrice responded to that, which was um, I respect the offer and I respect the possibility of that, but that's not but my no, thing. No, thank you. <laughs> that's yes. I do not. That's not yes. my direction. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it gave quite an interesting spin, didn't it, to them saying... I mean, in, in, in the 21st century, a woman... This is a kind of Sondheim story, in a way. You know, the woman who says, I just don't want to be married, I just don't want to be married. I mean, there are, in Shakespeare, there is only... Well, you will be married, so you are. You just haven't met the right man. There are other narratives... That, we, that are available to us and that were sort of available to the production for a moment, which I, which I thought was well, yeah, was well done. Well but done. I agree with you about um, we really need to feel that that kind of collective male energy is nervous of the female world mm. and the collective male energy has been compromised mm. in this production by having a woman at the centre of it. So when Be- uh, when Benedict is, is saying... I guess I respect women, you know, one gave birth to me, etc, etc, but I will never trust a woman. It is a slightly odd audience for that, because he's saying that to a woman in this production. But that that sense of kind of collective anxiety about what it might do to them individually, and what it might do to them collectively in their sort of bonds of brotherhood, to now have come back from the wars and to be exposed to this world which is dominated by clever, fast-talking, strong-minded women. Um, I'm still feeling a little bit of that. I liked the kind of martial, bellicose energy at the beginning. I felt they that was fun and, and they had a sense of its own sort of impish self-consciousness yes. yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. I, am, I am anxious about how they are going to tonally change that in the second half, but I am waiting to be delighted and surprised about how they can find a slightly darker tone about the things that we know are coming. That's fantastic. I'm really pleased we actually just talked about it in the interval because I think I will probably enjoy... I can see a lot of what you've said, actually. I think I might enjoy it more, having thought about those things. I do think that project of regendering characters, which has a really important political energy about the theatre industry 
and about the kinds of stories we tell, particularly about classic plays. I think sometimes it slightly lets Shakespeare's own gender politics off the hook a bit, and I think that might be happening, might be happening here. Um, and I hear your cautiousness about the set, so it makes for spectacular photos. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, a, an awesome experience to be in the presence of it, but there is a certain amount of stepping around it needed, and it doesn't offer the kind of cover spaces and uh, hiding places that the scene demands. But that, that's asking for our collusion, and I'm a theatre audience that is happy to collude. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. And a nice bit of work with a wheelbarrow and that, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Okay, so part, the second part, I think, is going to be, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm glad that you sort of set up how are they going to turn the, how they're going to turn the, the, the tempo. Yeah. Well, let's see. let's see. We're being called back in. Finish your ice cream, Emma. So we're back in Oxford. Judith, it's been a couple of days since we saw Much Ado About Nothing. What, what's, what rests in your mind about it now? What, what do you think when I say that? Um, I remember design. Yeah. And I remember atmosphere of some, some really standout performances. I remember... Should we start by talking about design? Because yeah. it was such a design-led production in some ways that, that was very ideas-heavy in relation to design and the, the impact of design mm. was big. Mm. But, yeah, and when we, when we were talking about it in Stratford, I was saying, mm, I don't think this, these sort of metal shapes that were the kind of you know, classical garden that we tend to see in the overhearing scenes we tend to see some topiary don't we and somebody's peeping behind I don't think too much of that and and uh, I realised I mean having thought about it I thought that was a rather brilliantly striking part realist part expressionist kind of a kind of a scene and I and I think that was probably something about the design more generally that in some ways it was a very lavish set of stuff in the world of that messiner. But in other ways, it was a lot of kind of slightly dream objects planted on the stage. Uh, and I think that was more interesting and smarter than, than my... It's great to have the chance to rethink, isn't it? I think if we'd done this immediately after the production, which we didn't do partly because it went on so long, um, I would have been... And uh, I've had a bit more time to think. I think, yeah, I, think I agree with that. Mm. So that the... The, the futuristic vision mm. of the set and design generally also necessarily invited us into a collusive relationship. We had it was a bit Oberon, I am invisible. You know, we needed to but we needed to collaborate mm. with the onstage actors to believe mm. that they were invisible at those moments, despite the fact that their efforts to self-hide were patently mm. insufficient actually to be mm. hidden. So it um so that uh, some of the futuristic things had odd moments, so that there was a I, th I thought the overall design was rather beautiful and rather striking, and I remember it as a series of quite impressive stills, and that that's both about set, but also about those lavish, kind of carnivalesque OTT costumes, which were witty in their extravagance, uh, with enormous wigs and enormous headpieces and a huge number of costume changes, a lot of gold, a lot of shine, a lot of... Um, sort of almost kind of comic book catch in some of the kind of scale of those things. Um, but there were also odd things which I, which clearly had some significant thinking behind them which I didn't know how to place. So when the men turn up with their swashbuckling glory um, coming back from the wars, they unload their treasure 
And their treasure is a, is a, a chest of glowing orbs. Mm. And the glowing orbs then reappear at sort of significant moments as if they've got some sort of ceremonial mm. weight. And that I, I don't know what sort of meaning to invest in those, although clearly they're designed to mean something. So they appear at the wedding that isn't, the wedding that might have been, the wedding that nearly is, the wedding that dissolves into violence. And then they have to retreat quickly because that ceremonial moment has been so dramatically disrupted. And there were other moments when, when I thought this, this sort of futuristic vision is, is, is quite interesting but, and it's quite ideas heavy, but some of those ideas are not fully translating. I, I, when um, Dogbury and crew are working with their very old-fashioned blackboard, which has been hung with fairy lights, I started by thinking, oh my goodness, this is a... This is the most compromised futuristic vision you could possibly have working with a blackboard. And then I thought actually technical, technological revolutions quite often do leave people behind. And that if you were feeling left behind and you wanted to use a blackboard, you might hang it with lights in order to make it look a little bit more techno. Mm. Uh, but that would have taken more had the technological pizzazz of the rest of the production around it had more traction so there were little kind of gestures in that direction when um you know when the letter arrives at the very beginning it's on some quite fancy little tablet and then in fact notes are taken on a fancy little shiny tablet in the in the quasi trial scene so I, I, the, the futuristic vision was both kind of beguiling and perplexing all at I, once. I completely agree but I suppose what I think that that has given to the play which is often a play we think of as not really needing a kind of interpretive frame because it is psychologically plausible in ways that we recognise. So we think, oh, okay, this is just two people who are obviously made for each other but can't, you know, they're too hurt or too, you know, whatever. It's stopping them getting together. And that's sort of all we need. It doesn't need... It's not an... Almost as if it's not an ideas play. It's a, it's a human nature play. Um, and so I suppose... I think it was a really very stimulating and brave. Brave is what you always say when it didn't work, and I don't quite mean that, but perhaps a little element of that. But to turn it into an ideas play, which is in a different world from ours, where there are some points of recognition, they're sometimes psychological, but there are lots of alienations as well. And I think that was a good thing to do with Much Ado, which can seem a bit too easy or a bit too... Um, straightforwardly layered onto our onto, onto our own world, but it is a very human play, isn't it? I mean, the the rhetorical flourishes are always embedded in a sense of the psychology mm. of. Did you believe it? Did you believe the the sort of humanness of those couples? And well, I suppose if I was going to a production of Much Ado and I didn't yet know what to expect, one of the things I would be asking myself is, how are they going to balance up the mirth? And the matter. How are they going to um, temper the hey nonny nonny with signs of work? And the, the play has some kind of balance between those two things, although it's also generically as a comedy, it also feels like a sort of rehearsal for something that engages much more mm. with the signs of woe later mm. in, in the late plays when we mm. get to Winter's Tale about what it means to be a woman who has been wrongly mm. accused of unchastity and what kind of pain that can yes. unleash in the world so it allows for a little bit of a, a sort of gestural encounter with that pain um but but it also resolves it it's almost 
uncomfortably fast mm. in a way that Winter's Tale, of course, mm. allows itself to stay in that place of pain for mm. about 16 years. Um, so I, but I do, I do think that there was a sort of fizz and a buzz and a crackle of, um, of human engagement. Mm. Um, and I particularly, I have to say, in, in Beatrice and Akia Henry's uh, Beatrice was this dynamo of sassiness and feisty sexiness and, and of winning in all of those rhetorical tussles mm. and fun. There was a lot of fun. Mm. I think I said at the interval that I was interested to see how they were going to still that, how they were going to bring that into some kind of darker tonality, which is waiting mm. in the second half. I don't know, what did you feel about the, the tone or the measure or the pain of the second half? I, um, yeah, what, I, I, I mean, I do think that the Beatrice and Benedict relationship, which is born out of, you know, born in that moment of pain, isn't it? I mean, they're completely inextricable. I did think that um, Beatrice's Kill Claudio was a kind of wonderful, wonderful moment. It was per- perfectly timed. It was very quick. It was it was very vehement. Um, it was very, oh, okay, you know, we can't, we, we can't go down this romantic line. She's not, you know, she's not having that. She hasn't changed completely. I didn't want her to change. I suppose one of the things the whole play made me realise was how violent the, uh, the, the violence to Beatrice in the overhearing scene, the violence done to her, her sense of herself that she hears from the others, is, you know, foretells or, or foreshadows what's going to be done to Hero um, and complicates a bit. That's the sense that I suppose I've always re- returned to, which is that this is a play about, this is a sort of battle battle of the sexes kind of play. If it's heading towards Winter's Tale, it's building off Taming of the Shrew. Um, but actually the women are horrible to Beatrice, aren't they? they and, and I was worried when she, then she comes in, doesn't she, and, and she's got a cold or has she got the Benedict or whatever. Um... She's a little bit. She was a little bit wounded there, a little bit bruised, wasn't wasn't she? And I realised I don't want Beatrice to be uh, to stop being. None of us do, do we? We don't want her to stop being um, difficult and mouthy and witty. Um, and I think she managed. What what I liked about the the performance was I think we we managed to keep that. Mm. Even even in the in the, in the relationship, the kill Claudia moment was played in a very different way from the from the way I think I've ever seen it played before. It got a, a significant laugh, yeah. Uh, and as you say, it it bit back very fast, so that we're at the in the sort of foothills of the revelation of their of their of the extremity of their love for each other. And it is, and he says, "How can I prove my love for you?" And she she bites back with kill Claudio with such speed that it looks like everything before that point has been strategic mm. in order to be able to manoeuvre him into that place. And the audience laughed quite significantly at that point. Oh, and that's that very I think I, I think I have only ever seen it before as a moment of deadly stillness, yeah. where she then instructs him to do the thing that must be done, yeah. knowing that it is a, 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 an extraordinary burden to place upon him since his brother-in-arms and his friend is the man who he's now being instructed to kill on a question of honour. But to play it for laughs, I thought that was brave. And it also, in some ways, slightly compromised the 
the weight of the love suit exchange. But what I'd really enjoyed just before that moment, in the um, in the wedding scene, the wedding that isn't, and they'd, they'd had that taking place on a sort of plinth, on a sort of golden double-layered mm. plinth, which was a bit like a wedding cake mm-hmm. and a bit like an altar. And, uh, and they left Hero on that plinth in a way that felt to me to be humanly implausible that if if your friend was exposed in that way you'd just want to get her into some small quieter more sheltered space Mm. and that the production the blocking of the production left her in that very in that sort of exposed space for an uncomfortably long time she was almost like um a sort of Lavinia figure, you know, mm-hmm. that um, bleeding, whilst other things go on around her, and that that asked quite a lot of her performatively, and that the it was a slightly sort of petulant, childlike hero we got, and so it was a it was a big ask of, of anybody to be that exposed for that long in a moment of that kind of pain, but after the violence such as it is, it's such very temperate violence in this mm-hmm. production. One prepares to be incredibly shocked as it as the misogyny is unleashed um and that they didn't take it into the high key i had been expecting it but nevertheless after the men have gone and believing her to have fainted and and that she's going to be announced as dead subsequently and then benedict makes his sort of statement of with there was a wonderful moment with beatrice who then is who is stilled as she listens with a kind of attentiveness and an acuity to Benedict breaking from those male bonds and deciding to stand with this community community in pain, which is actually a sort of female dominated community, and that he it feels it felt to me in the production that it had been a sort of rhetorical game, even mm-hmm. when have you caught the Benedict? Even that is was part of a game, but he, he won her by being right minded in a very difficult human moment. Mm-hmm. When and some went to an audience who are look, who are looking for the familiar and the foreign, yeah. you know that they, yeah. oh, I I know how this bit might play. Yeah, I know the kind of patterns it's fallen into in the past. In what way are they going to, as it were, acquiesce yeah. to that? And in what ways are they going to resist it? Yeah. and surprise me in terms of how they're doing it. So the kill Claudio, yeah, you know, was a real surprise to me that that was played with quite that bite and speed and for laughs, um, and the exposure of hero mm. on on the plinth wedding cake mm-hmm. altar thing S- similarly was something I wouldn't have thought of doing and, and was um, it kind of resonated across plays and across productions as well mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to the um, to the gender war mm-hmm. thing which in some ways does sit at the heart of the play and they, these men arrive with their sense of themselves as war heroes and they arrive into a world that is um, that they know their way around far less well mm. and that is anxiety provoking and they start making their sort of nervous joking almost as soon as they enter mm. about cuckolding and the kind of enmeshing that one that might happen to one and how one might be rendered a fool mm. quite easily and so when the Don John plot takes off it's it's obscenely fast that their nervousness is converted into uh, I, I knew it, mm-hmm. and then uh, misogyny and uh, violence thereafter. But of course, as we were talking about uh, at the interval, that sense of here come the men with all of their competence, but all of their nervousnesses and all of their latent misogyny, which only needs to be scratched very slightly in order to be unleashed 
but that male world has been interestingly compromised by casting Don Pedro uh, as a woman and renamed Don Pedra, and that she is then collusive in the male violence, and we want her to break out from that and show some solidarity. And in some ways, she has been, you know, with the sort of the zeal of the new convert almost. She's like as as much in the misogynist camp as any of them, and we are the more disappointed. But that her, I, I wanted just to return to that because it, it was such an interesting and such a, a starkly brave piece of casting that actually cut into some of the patterning of the play and unsettled it. And the disruptions were sometimes useful and sometimes significantly disquieting. Mm. And I think the difference between um, sort of cross-casting and cross-gendering in our moment, in our Shakespearean moment, is actually very, is a very interesting one. You know, are, are you saying actors play roles and those roles uh, are discontinuous with their bodies in, in lots of different ways? Or are you saying um, we change these characters so that they fit these different different uh, actors I I mean I was glad to have the uh, perhaps what my expectation of the play undone um, by this but I thought that the solidarity of the women um, in the in the marriage scene was very uncomfortable and discomfort is a good thing isn't it in the theatre was, was uncomfortable with um the production kept quite quite rightly the um the complete lack of remorse that is shown by don pedro and, and, and claudio when they meet um uh leonardo and, and antonio and that they, you know it's only when they realize that in fact hero wasn't unfaithful that there's any dent in their merriment and they're picking a fight with these with these old men and you know strutting around and that's that made the Don Pedro a very very uncomfortable uncomfortable figure and I thought the production was a little bit unclear whether we were supposed to think Don Pedro was a lesbian or sort of was inevitably so or quite there was something Odd and oddly modern, wasn't there, about the sense that Don Pedro could have been wooing Hero for herself? Nobody seemed to feel that that was any problem, except that she should have been with Claudio. That was, that was quite, an, quite, quite an interesting way in which that recasting worked and sort of didn't work, I thought. Yes, and then was consolidated in the sort of wooing of Beatrice. Mm-hmm. And um, Beatrice is quite um nimble yes uh, well obviously i sort of respect the offer but i need you to know that's not yes. my direction of tra- that's right. travel that's that's not where my inclinations tend thank you uh, i thought that little bit was actually quite dexterously handled yeah. but those men the don pedro claudio even leonardo a little bit are let off by the play and very much so by this production i i thought by the sort of convenience of the Don John character, so that that sort of irredeemable villainy of Don John allows everybody to go, oh, Don John, mm. he's wicked, isn't he? And he even he goes, mm. yes, yeah, so, you know, I am a, I'm a plain-speaking villain. Mm. And so this uncompromising villainy exists in the play in a way that allows everybody to dump all of that which is rotten on him yeah. and for him to take it. Yeah. And uh, that sort of implicitly exonerates a whole series of other things that have actually generated the the major scarring in the play. And that so the men are allowed 
redemption, they're allowed to get what they fundamentally want, which is, you know, to be hooked up with the right woman at mm. the end, and to feel morally, morally clean about it in the process, because one can devise brave punishments for Don John. Mm. Um, and I, in a sense of making the production feel wrapped up, especially in the context of a production that had been so brilliantly dancey with some super funky mm. music all the way through. I thought that I will devise brave punishments for him at the end, but let's have a dance first. Um, that the dance would be um, a, real, a real moment of healing and that they would in, indulge it. Mm. And it was... Very truncated, wasn't it? It was very truncated and I didn't feel that enough... I, I wasn't given enough to, to feel the okayness of the ending. So there were, the, the troubling resonances were still very much present and that there wasn't enough dancing to banish it at the end. And maybe that's a good thing because actually banishing it is a slightly a false ending in some ways. It's recognising that we haven't solved things, we haven't cured things. Um, but in the context, in the context of a, a, a production that had gone so big on such brilliant dancing... Mm. I, I kind of craved a little bit more than we were offered there. And that, you know, it's a play that refuses to redeem Don John uh, because it kind of wants, presumably, us to feel that we can reconcile, reconcile ourselves to a, to a decent ending for the other men, mm. despite what's been released into, into this world. Um, but, you know, as you like it, which is the next year, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's less than a year later, as you like it, has a sort of jokey ending which Duke Frederick is converted at the end and it allows itself the rhetoric of we will we will redeem villainy. No, there is no villainy that is irredeemable. But Shakespeare doesn't allow himself that with Don John, presumably in order to allow Claudio to get his gal. Yeah, the play bends over backwards, doesn't it, to make that okay. And that's so interesting given what you started by saying about how it's setting up those later plays. I mean, Shakespeare's not satisfied with this version of it, is he? Because he keeps scratching away at this scenario. Yes. Um, we've had the go in Merry Wives of Windsor, I guess. Have we already? Probably. We're going to head on to seeing it again. Yes, hmm. I mean, and, and it does feel like a, a playwright who enjoys the generic spinning of rich material. Yeah. So, gig on, give me a story, all right? The story this time I'll take the woman who's been wrongly yep. accused of sexual infidelity. I'll show it you with a, a comic spin. Much do. Here we go. Yep. All right, same story. Woman wrongly accused of sexual infidelity. I'll show it you with a tragic spin. Othello. Yeah. And then a few years pass. And that let me reflect on much do. Let me mm. reflect on Othello. Neither of them is quite satisfying. I would like to believe there could be a way back. But the, the way back that I found within those kind of comic generic structures was was too easy. Mm. I need to make it harder and I need to make I need to make the ending more fractured and more pained mm. than I was able to do within mm. those comic structures. Let's go to them next. Okay, I'll see you there, Emma.